Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. If a doctor sits down and tells you um, that headache you have is actually quite a large brain tumour, I pretty much guarantee you don't hear anything after that. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. Brain cancer kills more children in Australia than any other disease and more people under 40 than any other cancer. The survival rate has not improved over the last 30 years. In this episode of the Aftershock Podcast, I speak to Cassandra. Cass's life completely changed when at the early age of 38 years old, she was diagnosed with a brain tumour. She has been through surgery, 28 months of chemotherapy, and many MRIs and PET scans. Cass's life took a turn she was not expecting, however decided to create something incredible to contribute to other patients dealing with brain cancer. Thanks so much for joining us, Cass. Can we start with uh, what were you diagnosed with? I was diagnosed with a diffuse astrocytoma. So it was a extensive um, stage three uh, brain tumour. And what were your symptoms? Did you have any? I did have some symptoms. I'd just been suffering a, an outbreak of, um, oh, sorry, um, I had just been suffering from pneumonia and for some reason I was getting these headaches that just wouldn't go away. Um, so I've seen the doctor for the pneumonia and then one day she just said, this headache is just, it's just, you're not meant to have headache with all the drugs that you're on for the pneumonia. You shouldn't be having this. Um, I was really interesting. Actually, my doctor, um, is from the Ukraine and she did her medical training in, um, in the Ukraine and as, or sorry, in Ukraine. And as a result, she, she used to treat a lot of patients that had brain tumours as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. So, yeah, it was really interesting. So when I went in to see her, I talked a little bit about the pneumonia and then I spoke a couple of times about the headache and then one day she said, it's just, I don't think this is a headache. And I thought, gee whiz, that's um, very insightful because I, I just thought I'd had too few many Chardonnays the night before. Yep. <laughs> and it turned out, anyway, so it turned out to be brain tumour. How did you receive that diagnosis? Um, oh, firmly in a state of denial. Um, <laughs> um, I went in to have a CT scan ordered by the GP in relation to the headaches on a Monday morning thinking I had pneumonia. Um, and then later that when I had the CT scan, they walked me directly from that machine into the MRI, which should have been my first clue that there was a problem. Uh, but it wasn't. <laughs> um, and then she sent me straight back to my GP after the after the MRI. And still, I was like, oh, just, this is all a bit strange, but I didn't put together that there might be a problem. And even as my doctor sat there and said, you have a brain tumour, I still thought, well, it could be very mild. It could be nothing. We'll just continue on you know with all of the appointments so it didn't really strike me until I was about four months into diagnosis when one of my oncologists said you know obviously with a shortened lifespan um blah 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 and I that was when I realized you know hang on back up a bit what do you mean shortened lifespan no one talked to me about this 
Yeah. And she said, well, you have a brain, you have brain cancer. And I said, no, no, I have a brain tumour. They're very, very different things. And she said, uh, uh, they're not they're not that different. <laughs> so I was about I was about four months into diagnosis before I really started to um, take it in, I guess. I hadn't really, I just hadn't, I just had been in a state of denial for that long. I just I didn't want to be a part of it. Yeah, I guess it's a survival thing as well. Um, what did what was your treatment plan like? So I had um, I was diagnosed on a Monday and I had surgery the following Monday. So that was that's pretty quick. I had surgery on that, and then after that, I went on to a, sort of a two month period of um, where we didn't do anything while we waited to see. Uh, all of the different um, pathology reports and stuff on the tumour and some of it was sent to the US um, to get a better idea of what we were looking at. And then on about two months in, I started um, chemotherapy. Um, I was on a drug called temozolomide for just over a year. Um, While I was on temozolomide, we saw some growth in the tumour, so we moved on to a different, uh, another, um, another chemotherapy treatment. Um, and I was 12 months on that and then we were seeing some more growth in the tumour so we went straight from that into um, six and a half weeks of radiation which brought me up to sort of the middle of last year so the middle of 2021. Yeah what were the side effects like? With the chemotherapy um, I noticed that I was obviously very tired Um, a lot of people have some um, nausea and that type of thing but really for me it was just the ongoing confusion where I had been working in a reasonably busy job and I had, you know, a lot going on, just got two children, all that sort of thing. And I just found that I I wasn't able to string a sentence together. Some days I would wake up in the mornings and try to put my shoes on, or sorry, try to put my T-shirts on as shorts (laughs) or a variety of other things where I just, I wasn't, I was in the right situation. So I'd be in the kitchen but I'd be looking for stuff that should be in the bathroom. Did anyone talk to you about the potential side effects? Like, were you prepared for these kind of things? Uh, no, I wasn't really. And that's probably partially about, about what my doctors talked to me about. But the other side is how much do you take in? Um, and if you're in a state of denial, sometimes, I mean, they can tell you all, all of the things in the book, but you hear none of it, which is certainly where I was at. Oh, of course. I know. Um with with my mum, she she had my dad there, and when we got her diagnosis, I'm pretty sure we were recording. Someone actually told us to do that, record it, because oh. even though oh, you yeah. you think you're absorbing it, you you really aren't, and it's in one ear, out the other. And you can also your mind can play tricks on you about what you choose to remember as well. That is absolutely true. Um, one thing I found in my own research is that people only retain about thirty percent of the information that's given to them in any doctor's consultation. But as someone, if a doctor sits down and tells you um, that headache you have is actually quite a large brain tumour um, and most of it's inoperable, uh, I pretty much guarantee you don't hear anything after that. Absolutely. And we know with this kind of cancer that, um, as you just mentioned, you've got two kids, you're in the, you've got a busy job, you're in the absolute prime of your life. This is, it hits you for six. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, I tried to... I tried to battle on with it Um, after I was initially diagnosed. I started chemotherapy. I went 
straight back to work. I was having chemo. I was doing taking the chemo in the mornings because it was a tablet-based or a medication-based chemotherapy. I was taking that in the mornings, um, going to work for a full day. I still worked 40-plus hour weeks throughout the first sort of three months. Um, and then one day I just realised I walked into a, into a director's office and I couldn't remember why I was there and he just sort of said, I just think this is something you need to put down for a little while. Um, and I think that was when I really realised that I, I was actually kind of sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. And, and what support um, did you have when you were diagnosed? So I have a really close family um, and I was living in Sydney at the time. So we had um, a lot of family come up to visit. I live in Canberra and my family live in Canberra now. But when I was diagnosed, we were in Sydney. Um, and I also had a lot of um, support in Sydney and then also in Canberra, but also within my workplace um, I used to work for a large accounting a large accounting firm, and through them, I had some contacts with uh, within the hospitals where that had been my clients, I guess, when I was consulting. Um, and so, a lot of those contacts also came into the fore, um, helping me work out the questions I needed to ask, who I needed to see next, the things I needed to be aware of, um, how to negotiate, or how to work with the NDIS around what I can and can't do um, with the diagnosis and after radiation and things like that. And you mentioned your your two little kids. Um, how old were they at the time and how did you tell them what, what you were going through? Um, so my youngest was four um, and my eldest was six. He was in his first term at in kindy, um, my eldest. So that was... It wasn't tough. We've been very careful to not lie to them. So the boys are aware um, that mummy has a brain tumour, that mummy has taken chemotherapy or, you know, they had radiation. Um, so they're aware of all of the machinations, I guess. They probably don't necessarily have a, a concept of like a shortened lifespan. And that's something that we've been cautious about how we deal with because you don't always know to have all the answers at the time, we just tell them things as they happen and as they need to know. We try to answer the questions as honestly as possible. Um, but it's been like quite a, you know, it's been quite a struggle, um, you know, trying to turn up every day for the boys when all I want to do is crawl into bed <laughs> and stay there. <laughs> you know, someone's still got to make breakfast and the kids still need to go to school. And so in some ways it was difficult, but in other ways the boys and my family have just been the, they've just been the next, the thing to get up for. And if I didn't have them, I don't know how the last couple of years would have been. Oh, absolutely. And the last couple of years, obviously we've been, little different with COVID around um, and by little I mean actually extremely different because you actually had to travel um, for your treatment. Can you talk us through that? Yeah so um, I'm having radiation at Royal North Shore or I had radiation um, treatment at Royal North Shore and I was at the time living in Canberra um, so I had initially intended that I would travel up and to and from Sydney um, to do the treatment but as pretty much the week that we started radiation um, uh, Sydney went into lockdown and can and the ACT government also prohibited um, New South Welshmen from coming into the state so I was essentially 
trapped, for want of a better word, trapped in New South Wales. I needed to have the treatment, and if you start radiation, you need to finish it. So there's no sort of I'll just come back when this is all over. I had to finish it. So um, that just meant that I spent that six weeks um, away from the kids and away from my husband, which is difficult because you're going through – you know something and I was also losing all my hair so um, the boys were not watching that happen I thought that would be easier for them to understand if they could sort of see it falling out or or stuff but when I came home and it was all gone I think that was a bit of a shock yeah and how did they handle that um, I think reasonably well, as I said, we've been pretty honest with them. So they knew I was having radiation and they would lose my hair and that type of thing. Um, they've always got some very interesting um, ideas about what we could do with it next. So um, we haven't we haven't dyed my new hair purple yet, but apparently it's on the cards. <laughs> Why purple? I don't know. It's just the colours the boys chose. <laughs> Your diagnosis moved so quickly and once, I guess, you – I don't know, maybe we always live in a bit of a denial as a survival thing, like I mentioned, but um, how did you begin to handle the urgency of what you were facing? I started doing a lot of reading. Um, So I got my hands on all of the the, the studies on the chemotherapy I was taking and tried to understand radiation a little better than I did. So I'm an accountant, so I've got absolutely no concept of um, medicine or science um but I did want to understand what my chances were I wanted to understand what my options were um and part of doing that was trying to become like as educated as I could um with all of this with all of what was going on and you mentioned you were an accountant how did you find that transition you obviously um you went through your schooling you might have had goals to be an accountant or go in that kind of field um how did you manage transitioning out of that life so it was actually difficult in the initially um especially i mean i worked as i said for a couple of months after diagnosis and into chemotherapy so i I really did not want to walk away from my role i loved my team i liked the job i was doing i'd sort of finally nestled into a good professional life with the kids and you know had done all of that hard work um to make to try and make it successful but i have to say that initial shock was was awful but today i don't necessarily miss the corporate life i've found other things that i've enjoyed doing and um making a difference in a different way so um there was definitely a readjustment period but um i'm not unhappy with where we've landed yeah, and you you had that time time away to spend with your kids, which is obviously priceless, no matter what you're going through. Um, but yeah, talk us through what you, um, I guess, discovered during that time. So um, there's a lot of information about brain cancer. Unfortunately, we're not very good at treating it. So from a base level, um, brain cancer is the biggest killer of children and the also the biggest killer of adults under 40 so additionally brain cancer patients only 20 percent of brain cancer patients live for five years after diagnosis so when you take all of that in i remember thinking all right there's got to be a handbook 
how do I manage all these things? I've got this diagnosis that's got this terrible outlook. Um, and I couldn't find it. I could find, couldn't find anywhere where it was in one place. So I could find the information I needed about the chemotherapy from my medical oncologist. I could talk to my radiation oncologist about how radiation was going to feel. I could talk to the hospital, um, the social workers, et cetera, at the hospital about managing, you know, income and support and that type of thing. But I, there was no one place. And of course, I'm in the middle of having radiation and chemotherapy that is causing more stress on my brain as it was. So I really found that there just wasn't an easy way to manage all the information um, that you needed to be aware of and keep track of, you know, through all the treatments um, and diagnosis. So I sat down with a girlfriend of mine who was a very talented um, graphic designer and we sat down and created a treatment diary for patients with brain cancer or brain tumours. Incredible. And what's it called? So it's called the Survivorship Diary. Um, Survivorship's a bit of a kind of a catch-all word in cancer treatment at the moment. But the idea of survivorship is um, even though you might have a terminal diagnosis, there is a period of time where you're actively living in the diagnosis. And survivorship is about finding um, your way through the treatments, but then also finding a way to live or finding your how you want your life to be after you've finished um, treatment as well. So um, we call it the Survivorship Diary. It's a resource to help patients and families manage their treatment and lifestyle after a brain cancer diagnosis. And is it almost, a like you said, for families as well, because it is such a, you want as a family member to be to be helpful and to be able to um, track what's going on as well. Do you find that family members find it useful as well as the patient? Yes. So the diary was designed specifically for patients and their families to work in together. So, for example, there's a list of the um, 10 questions that you should ask um, for both um, 10 questions for carers and also 10 questions for patients because the carer's experience is different. Um, to patient experience and I think that especially with a diagnosis like brain cancer where the patient might personality changes can occur or you know their their ability to remember information that's given to them in treatment etc is really um, can be really damaged or they can find themselves a bit lost like I do sometimes um, so having the patient and the carer work, work, work together is really important. And so we tried to design the diary such that it was for both carers and patients. Yeah. Oh, I think it's just incredible what you've, what you've created. Um, have you had people reach out to you sharing their stories? We do find that people reach out um, and tell us, you know, how helpful the diary has been, how important it was, especially in those first few weeks after diagnosis, how to ask questions who you need to ask them of and how to keep track of all the information. Because the one thing that you'll get in that first appointment is like a stack of leaflets from the Cancer Council, from the Brain Tumor tumor Societies. All this stuff is going to come and then you'll just be left to sift through it. And the diary was about kind of doing that for patients. And it's so intimidating. I remember in my mum's hospital room once, I got confused between pastoral and palliative care 
And ah, yes. I, I, I saw a brochure for what was pastoral care, but I thought it was palliative. And my mom wasn't at the bad stage yet. And I was just so, I lost it. And I was just like, why do we have this here? You're not going through this. You're fine. Um, and it was just sitting there and oh, I can still remember it. And it was, it's, it's just really hard. And brochures are good, but they'll only get you, you know, so far you need someone like yourself being like this is practical but from a patient experience as well and it's the real shit you've got to deal with yeah that's exactly correct then that's what we wanted to to do like and then a really good example of that is that every single chapter in the book has sort of the top questions you need to ask so the questions you need to ask around surgery and also a place to write them down so you don't carry your own notebook and diary you carry the one the one thing in the diary it's a4 so it's big enough such that your hand like you don't have to squish your handwriting um and that's why we did it this way was because we knew that um you would need it quickly um and also it needed to um sort of meet the needs of those early those early couple of weeks in diagnosis. What are some of the top questions that come to your mind that people should should be asking from a patient's point of view and the family member's point of view? So I think there's a couple of things really early on patient people need to understand is that brain cancer is not um, brain cancer is different to cancer that has metastasized from somewhere else. So people that might have lung cancer that is metastasized to the brain it's not the same thing. Um, and understanding that I think is early is important early on um, because otherwise you could get yeah, – I just think that's important to understand early and how, on. And how is it different? So a tumour that starts somewhere else in the body but spreads to the brain is considered a secondary cancer and it's called a metastasis. The very general rule of thumb, the brain cancer does not move to other parts of the body. So if you have brain cancer, you won't get it in your breast. But if you have breast cancer, it may travel to your brain. If that has happened, there is no – none of the drugs that they use for brain cancer can use to treat that. The other thing is, is, is that when we talk about brain cancer and brain tumours, um, Generally speaking, they consider stage three and four brain tumours to be cancer, so uh, um, fast multiplying cells. So that's the definition of cancer from the um, very basis, basic level. But stage two or stage two and three or, sorry, three, sorry, stage one and two brain tumours, sometimes they're considered not cancer. So they're a tumour but not cancer. And there's a bit of a a shift at the moment in the brain cancer community. Essentially, if you have a tumour, you have all the same treatment as a patient with brain cancer. So it's kind of – so we talk a little bit about, a bit about terminology in the diary because in that early stages it can be a bit confusing whether you've got brain cancer or a brain tumour. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's – I think it's such helpful resources and, and notes to have. I think, you know, if you pick this up, you're probably facing a brain cancer diagnosis or at least tra- treatment schedule that includes radiation, chemotherapy and um, surgery. So, you know, call your disease what you think it should be called, whether that be cancer, tumour or FRED. Um, but the reality is you're probably likely to go through all of those treatments. And so 
um, I think just call it what you like. Something for the aftershock is um, you are going down those train tracks as someone else um, and similar to the survivorship diary. And whilst your tracks may not meet, it's nice to know that you aren't alone and that there's other people out there. Um, and it's not, you don't want other people going through this by any means, but the reality is, is that they are and that, you know, you've created a resource that that is helpful to other people because you've lived through the experience, which is, you know, it's pretty amazing that you, you took that time to be able to create this. Oh, thank you. It's been um, also cathartic, but it's nice to be able to put something back. I guess, um, you know, if I knew anything about science, I would be in a lab somewhere trying to help, but I'm, I'm not talented in that way. So this was the next best thing I could think of. Oh, totally. Um, I feel the same. Keep me well away from a lab. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too talkative for a lab anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your, what's your day to day like, like now and, and what treatment are you on? So at the moment I'm finished all available treatment for brain tumors. So um, I've had um, six weeks of radiation. I've had surgery. I've also had um, two and a half years on two different types of chemotherapy. So I'm I'm done with treatment. There is nothing else unless they come up with something pretty quickly. So day to day, I still take medication for seizures. So I take um, morning and night medication to manage that. But generally... I don't think about it much anymore, or at least I try not to. Yeah, so you're able to, as much as you can, live your daily life as best you can. Yeah, and I think, yes, that's true. Like, I don't drive um, for the obvious, like, if you're having seizures, you can't drive. How, um, so how often do you have seizures? So the last one I had was uh, uh, on Australia Day, Um and I think that one might have been related to fatigue. So we changed my um, some of the medications I was taking and I haven't had one since. So if you've had a seizure, you can't drive for 12 months. So hopefully in January of 2023, I can drive the car to get the kids from school. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's yeah, very interesting to know. How do people get their hands on the diary? So in order to um, start distributing it, we worked with a group from Victoria out of um, Geelong called Peace of Mind. And the Peace of Mind Foundation are specifically focused on patient welfare. So a lot of brain cancer fundraising is done to to look for cures, which is excellent because we definitely need them. Um, But still the patients that get brain cancer today are still facing a pretty um, extreme couple of years ahead, if, if you even get a couple of years. Um, yeah. So the diary has been distributed now by a group called Peace of Mind, and Peace of Mind focus on helping patients live the best that they can with the diagnosis um, in, the, in the time that they have. Um, so it made sense to deal with Peace of Mind. So... You can do, in order to obtain a copy of the diary in hard copy, you can do one or two things. You could pick up the phone and or search Peace of Mind in Geelong and they will send you a copy. You could also go to our website, which is www.survivorshipdiary.com and you can order yourself a free copy there 
or you can also download a copy and then print it yourself, um, which you might like to do, say, if you want to put it in a ring binder folder or something like that. So, Yeah, and I think it's just so important to know where to get it from. Even like anyone listening, hope you're not affected by brain cancer, but it can just pop up when you least expect it or a friend of a friend and you can point them in the direction of this kind of resource because it really is invaluable to have um unfortunately someone's learned experiences but wrapped up in something digestible for you i think it's um really incredible what you've done cass oh thank you may is brain cancer awareness month and like you said the survival rate for this cancer has not improved for 30 40 years i mean think of how advanced the world has become yet if you're diagnosed with this cancer the survival rate unfortunately hasn't improved um but it is a reality that people like yourself are going to be diagnosed and continue to be diagnosed so like I said you've you've done such an incredible job providing a resource for people who will unfortunately inevitably have um be diagnosed with brain cancer one thing that really struck me when I was first diagnosed was the story of um Neil Armstrong's daughter um Six years before he walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong lost his daughter to DIPG, which is a seriously aggressive form of childhood brain cancer. There are no survivors from DIPG. Today, if your daughter was diagnosed with DIPG, she would have the same outcomes and the same treatments as was offered to um, Karen, um, you know, years before he walked on the moon. Today, you walk around with more more information on your mobile phone than they had with them in the rockets that took them to space. It's just crazy that nothing's changed in that time. Oh, absolutely. Um, And this is why we need to raise the awareness and have those resources and for people to know, people understand that we need to increase funding for brain cancer, that's a given, Um, but actually doing it and having these resources um, as a practical guide and resource is just incredible so thank you Cass (laughs) thanks I've really enjoyed doing this Suzanne thanks very much for the opportunity a huge thank you to Cass for sharing not only her story with us but for creating the survivorship diary what an incredible resource for future patients and their family members to take the learnings from actual patients as they begin their fight against brain cancer For more information on the Survivorship Diary, please visit our website at theaftershock.org. Until next time, I'm Susie Neat, and this has been The Aftershock Podcast.